0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Why Women's Stories Matter was recorded at the 2019 Festival and includes Clementine Ford, Kate Lilly and Alison Whittaker. Your host is Tricia Pender.
1: My name is Trisha Pender and I'm from the University of Newcastle. It is my inestimable delight to be on the stage with you today with three such terrifically talented women writers. From uh, closest to me is Kate Lilly. Kate's recent collection, Tilt, just won the Victorian Premier's Prize for Poetry. So warm your hands <laughs> off that. Kate is an Associate Professor of English and Director of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Sydney. She's uh, edited a collection of her mother's poems Dorothy Hewitt selected poems, and her previous two collections are Versary 2002 and Ladylike 2012. So, welcome, Kate. Our next guest is Alison Whittaker, and Alison's terrific book Black Work has this year won the mascara literary prize for avant-garde poetry so round of applause <laughs> Yes, this session is going to be highly participatory. (laughs) Um, Alison is a Gomoroy woman from the floodplains of Gunnada. She is a Fulbright scholar, a legal scholar, and she works at UTS. She's won the Black and White Fellowship for her 2015 collection of poetry, Lemons in the Chicken Wire. So, welcome. Thanks. And Clementine Ford is a freelance writer and feminist and all-round legend. <laughs> so uh, she has previously written Fight Like a Girl, um, which is 2016, and the book that she is talking with us about today is Boys Will Be Boys. Welcome, Clem. So um, I'm going to ask each of our readers to read throughout um, one small section throughout the panel today, and Kate, I wonder if you can start us off with two of the poems from Tilt.
2: Conversation Pit, 1971. We were all there, mum, dad, my sister, three brothers. Mum said Are you having sexual intercourse? She wanted to know what was going on in the sports shed at South Perth Primary. Kissing, I said, just kissing. Whoever's nearest, only boy, girl, then swap. Later, my best friend and I tried out what we'd learnt on each other. We thought we were so ingenious. I was 11, she was 12. The question changed everything. What had seemed forward was now backward. I needed to speed up, at least get my period. Chattel. He appears in the doorway, his white wife front's bulging. A teenage girl is a come on, I get it. Face to face on the living room floor, so long as you're enjoying it. I've read his feature articles, it doesn't help. I'm told I'm very good at this, guess not.
1: Thank you, Kate. So the title of this session is Why Women's Stories Matter. By introducing your book to the audience, can each of you tell me why the story of this book, so Tilt, Black Work and Boys Will Be Boys, mattered to you personally? Why was it important to you to
2: tell this story? Well, I think that um, it's a reckoning long in the making For me and uh, sort of coincides with me getting interested in um, writing something less oblique and less sort of directly intellectual than I um, have written before uh, to see what that, you know, what that might be like. And as it happened, it coincided with, uh, you know, the process of writing it sort of Somehow dovetailed with the emergence of the Me Too movement, and so that it wasn't part of it at the beginning, but it became part of it, and that I think helped me a lot. And I also learned in the process of writing it that my sister was writing um, a memoir, uh, including both poetry and prose that covered some of the same territory, and so it, it felt in an interesting way like part of something, you know, much bigger than me. And a kind of, you know, not just a kind of duty to uh, or interest in, you know, myself and what happened to me, but, you know, to this question of, um, I think particularly, I mean, certainly, you know, a feminist um, and queer commitment, but also an interest in the lives of young people and especially the kind of sexual um predation experienced by young people at the hands of um, much older people.
1: Great. Alison, what
3: about you in this story? Yeah. So my book, Black Work, was, I guess, trying to enter into a conversation in a different way that I hadn't entered into it before. Uh, My first book, Lemons and the Chicken Wire, was kind of trying to capture something that I thought was quintessential about my experience as a queer Aboriginal woman. And the response to it really jarred me. I thought I was going to kind of send out this book to the world and I would reach lots and lots of little people like me who would kind of feel the same things and see the world in the same way as I did. And I maybe reached, like, of all the people who read my book, 5% of those people were people who I thought would be my audience. And then the rest of my audience was a lot of white women. And it was difficult for me to wrestle with that because I'd written what's effectively a completely different book in the hands of white readers. And I thought there was maybe something dangerous about that in my candour and the invitation that I was giving to people to come into my life. Um, And black work is kind of, I think, more of a confrontational book rather than trying to uh, explain or educate as the cliches go it's kind of trying to more push back on that audience to be a bit more hostile Um, and something about that is really joyful being able to have that kind of candor knowing more explicitly who your audience is Uh, and it's a bite back that I've wanted to do for a long time Clementine and I were talking before the panel about A poem that's in the collection called A Love Like Dorothy's and it was a reply to Dorothy McKellar who wrote my country about my country and I grew up with um in Gunnedah this horrible statue of her that had rusted and turned green and crows would peck out her eyes and I felt like for a long time I kind of wanted to talk back to that gaze um and black work was the opportunity to do that
1: fantastic in a in a way both of you were surprised by the audience to to the uh, to these books in a way. Um, Clem, what about you and the uh, the reason the personal reasons for writing Boys Will Be Boys?
0: Um, well, I wrote Boys Will Be Boys primarily because uh, my first book Fight Like a Girl was uh, obviously not a universal tale of womanhood because there is no universal tale. But I think that there were elements in there that are universal to all of us. Some of which are you know covered by the Me Too movement others are about the the space that we're allowed to take up to, to differing degrees. Um, and I felt like the other half of that story was the way that patriarchy socialises masculinity and how masculinity is then can be used as a weapon and is weaponized in certain ways to hurt other people and to hurt men themselves and also my personal reason for writing it was that I gave birth to a son and I wanted to figure out it was it's a way of trying to figure out how to navigate him through a patriarchal world that will that he has an extraordinary amount of privilege in as if he remains if he if he does turn out to be a cis man He's gonna be white, he's gonna be from a middle class background, and he'll obviously have the privilege of being cisgender. So how do I navigate someone who sort of represents, uh, who represents the the class of people that I know to cause oppression to others? How do I navigate them through that and and stop them from becoming perpetrator, but also prevent them from being harmed as a, you know, if he sits outside of that fringe? So that's, that's kind of the story behind that.
1: Yeah, great. Um, uh, Alison, you touched on some of the differences between black work and your first collection. I wanted to ask if you could read us a couple of poems. Um, you mentioned the Dorothea McKellar poem, either that or the other two, that, that the one that begins the book, it's up to you.
3: Maybe I'll read a love like Dorothy's. Yeah, that would be that it great. Came up. Sorry, now I've just got to find it. This is the problem with spontaneity. Yeah, we just
1: changed mid-sentence. <laughs> this is us thinking live.
3: I love like Dorothy's. I loved a sunburnt country, dislodged in a memory. I never lived in time to love a love like Dorothy's. we cannibals of other kinds. The white woman has eaten the sky and where's that leaf them girls like I? lost creatures chewing over the night. Of our missing sunburnt country, on which our prone feet land, yet onto which McKellar's gaze turns rivers into sand. It burns my eyes to turn to hers, my wide brown land out of like hands but traced in fetish verse. I love a sunburnt country. I loved a sunburnt country. I love white nativity that digs its roots and ticks to suck the floodplains to the sea. It was her love that swept those sweeping plains from Nan, from Mum, from me. Cored in my heart, my country, beauty, terror, balm and bite, building, taking flesh, building furnace, taking flight. Lavish and demanding, driving, lapping cattle off, While emu and kangaroo are like on highway going soft, I could have loved those twisting grass fans, grabbing moats with bubby hands. Like I loved this judied vastness, that I am less and less than land. I loved a sunburnt country, won't it please come back to me? Won't it show me why my spirit wanders but is never free? I will soothe its burns with lotion. I will peel off its dead skin if it can tell me why I'm drifting ever further from my kin. I loved a sunburnt country, won't it? Gingerly limp back. I can't get past the concrete and my black tongue's gone all slack. And I'm sorry, sweet McKellar, that it famished all your cows. Your paddock's yellow-thirsty, sudden green, no telling how, but the gold hush rainy drum was hard to violence and the plough. I love a sunburnt country. I love a sunburnt country that is mine but not for me.
1: Pretty amazing privilege to hear you read that. Thank you. Um, I want to tease out some more of the political stakes and contexts of these books. They've been published and relished uh, in the wake of the Me Too movement in a year last year in which the NAIDOC theme was because of her we can and yet in a culture in which violence against women is so rife, so commonplace in this country that one woman is murdered every week. How has the current political climate influenced what you wanted to say in these books?
2: Um, Well, I think something about um, the shift in, you know, some cultural shift that is taking place which seems to have made a space to be able to hear these kinds of stories differently and to take them seriously um is really remarkable and i'm not quite sure what you know presumably many factors have brought that about but um you know and it's you know there's a long way to go but i suppose in terms of um you know kind of you know i think as often happens you know when when you write you you know you you're moved to write things for very you know there are always sort of personal motives um but they play into much bigger context in ways that you're aware of and and you know can't be completely aware of uh so i think that it's um you know it's a complex process but a very live one and you know, I've certainly found that um, in doing various kinds of public appearances and readings and things to talk about the book, it you know, it's challenging um, that transition from the private space of writing to the space of publication. Of course, I, you know, I wittingly entered that. I, I've done that, but it, it doesn't make it any less challenging to um, address the material in different venues and in different ways, even when you know the audiences are you know as has as luckily has been mostly the case sort of very on side it's 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 very challenging, but I think it's 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 important you know it's significant in ways that will always be more than just uh, about you know the personal
1: right. Alison, in what ways does the political climate influence what you wanted to write and maybe also how you wanted to say it?
3: Yeah, so the NAIDOC theme that you mentioned, Because of Her Weekend, my book was published just after that and I think it kind of became part of a momentum that led up to that NAIDOC theme, uh, which is like within our communities beginning to seriously think about rematriation as the path to decolonisation and thinking about centering women as a fundamental value shift in how we do justice. That was really exciting for me, and it felt incredible to be part of that. Not necessarily, I think, contributing to that conversation, but certainly reflecting it. Um, The book that I released was actually written just before I left for a year overseas studying, and it was edited while I was overseas, and I think that really kind of comes forth in the books. I was exposed to, as the Me Too moment was happening, I was in America, and um, it felt like an enormous groundswell that was powerful, but I also saw ways in which the conversation was being mishandled in really powerful institutions that um, maybe worried me. So I was overseas studying, and we were having conversations about um Carceral feminism, which is uh, a feminism that prioritizes the use of police and prisons as a way of getting out of patriarchy, um, and of course, as Indigenous people, that's something um, that we're really skeptical and wary of. Um, but there was also kind of flippancy with which violence against women was being treated. So I was at, uh, and God, I hate saying this, I was at an Ivy League university, and I say that because these are the people who are going to set a future agenda for America, and as a result will come to wield some great influence over our conversation about gender in australia i took a class on gendered violence and the the things i routinely hear in that class really distressed me Um, part of what we were doing was trying to come up with um, solutions for what seemed like insurmountable societal problems Um, and some of the answers that people gave were really trivial and shown that people who were going to have an immense amount of power in these public institutions that were charged with protecting women fundamentally didn't understand how violence worked. And so proposed things like subsidising Uber Eats as a way of stopping intimate partner violence because men no one would fight about dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Uber Eats. It's just... Yeah, I know. And like, you, you kind of had this laugh in the back of your throat and you turn around and it would just be nodding heads and it was... Really frightening to see that part of that groundswell and that mass conversation uh, is an exciting moment, but also has its drawbacks when there's no quality control in the conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the point of quality control, Clem, I think you have been subject to uh, like violations of quality control in the way that um, trolls have responded to your, you know, commitment to bringing these issues to the fore. What about the political climate right now, or when you started writing? Boys will be boys. What made you want to write this?
0: Um, well. I just want to say quickly on the the, the trivial response and, and the lack of understanding that people have. There was, uh, on the Uber Eats thing, there was um, Dan Andrews. I'm from Melbourne and Dan Andrews is our premier and, and I generally think he's a good premier, um, but he announced a, a move recently that following the murder of Eurydice Dixon that they would be instituting... The way that I understood it was that they would be instituting a system where women comedians in particular, I think, I think that look, I think that, that was what he said, or, or women who were leaving work late at night would be able to get a free Uber ride home. And I remember just thinking that's not the answer to male violence against women, but also a number of women have been sexually assaulted by Uber drivers.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it
0: sort of seems to be another one of those circumstances where um, we have people in governing bodies... Overrepresented in governing bodies, who are making policies and rules for people for whom they don't, they have no idea what the, those lives are like. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just it's fucked across the board. Um. I don't know that it wasn't like something shifted in the public consciousness that made me go, oh, I should write this book now, because I was probably always going to write. This book, and it's something obviously that I've been the topics that I've been that I cover in there, you know, toxic masculinity, rape culture, patriarchy, etc., are things that I've been concerned about in my professional working life for a long time. It's more like Kate said that the public consciousness has shifted enough now to the point where I think that there is an eagerness to learn more about these, learn more about things that occur outside of ourselves, um, and to try and look at solving matters of great importance from with a different approach. Um, and there are more people now, even though there's still a lot of resistance to discussing male privilege and white male privilege in particular, there's a, a lot of people who are kind of coming to that conversation from demographics that you might not expect. Um, so I think that that is, for all of the, all of the kind of pushback that I personally experience, it, it feels irrelevant to me because I do see more and more people who are actually invested in wanting to create change. And they may not be particularly educated about how to create that change and they may make mistakes over and over, but the willingness, the willingness to learn is at least there and that's, that's a point that we can start on and produce something positive from.
1: Okay, great, thank you. Um, Clem, in your chapter, Girls on Film, you write, Toxic masculinity exercises itself in multiple forms, not all of them obvious. The assumption that the world's stages exist to tell their stories first and foremost is just another way to keep women in the wings. Can I ask you to read a bit from this chapter um, and talk to the topic of why women's stories matter?
0: Sure. Um, I'll just sort of preface this by saying that this film, uh, this chapter, Girls on Film, starts with me talking about, you know, my own childhood growing up with my brother and sister and watching movies and the kinds of, like, 80s hero comedy quests that, that we love to watch together and then realising at some point that my, my brother and I had very different uh, ways of relating to those films. Um, and it also looks at the backlash that was, um, the massive backlash that, was meted out against Ghostbusters with four women in it um, and Star Wars with women and people of colour in it. Oh, it's just not realistic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's science fiction for you. And then obviously, obviously, since the books come out, you know, backlash against Captain Marvel and the sort of, like, insistence on – insistence from people that no-one wants to watch these stories just because they don't want to watch these stories – Um, But there's the question again of relatability. Girls participate in mainstream pop culture because that's what we've been conditioned to do, which means we witness these stories about men and accept them as being reflective of a life that we can understand and in which we can find meaning. Are boys conditioned to do the same with stories about girls? I think it's patently clear that they're not. Stories about girls are considered niche and peripheral, in the same way stories about people of colour or stories about disability or queerness are. They can, in, they can be included by a sort of unspoken invitation and are still most often told by men or white people or able bods or stradies, etc., but they don't ever get to be the standard. Right from the start of childhood, boys are not expected to choose to watch stories about women, and they certainly aren't encouraged to do so by the mainstream, just as white people are not expected to care about stories featuring the lives of people of colour or to seek out content that champions them. Without anything to disrupt that insidious gender conditioning, these boys grow into men who think that stories about anything other than themselves are unrealistic or boring or my favorite. Another example of political correctness infecting the entertainment industry. (laughs) Women don't don't get a choice. We take what we can get and hold on tightly to even vaguely positive representations of people whose stories and lives are more like our own because we have learned that if you gather enough crumbs, you can sometimes put together a pretty good meal. Um, And I think I guess in terms of what we're talking about today, you know, why women's stories matter, it's the bigger question of course is like why stories of everybody matter, why diversity and representation in stories matter because obviously as a community if we're only ever told one story then that's the only story that ever gets to count Um, and it's it's frustrating enough for me as a white woman to see how women's how how the elevation of women's stories is is marginalized so of course it becomes exponentially more frustrating when issues of race and um you know race and and homophobia and transphobia and ableism etc and and when those conversations are then had um the way that it, that it's explained back to marginalised groups is another frustration. You know, my disabled friends, when they've complained about representation in films, you know, having able-bodied people play roles that should go to them, or trans people being played by cisgender people, and then being, you know, having it explained to them that oh well, it's just about acting. It should be about merit. It should be oh. about the best person for the job, with no kind of willingness from people to talk about. That it's not just about the story being told, it's about who's making the story and who's influencing the story. And, you know, it's like, Alison, like you were saying that when you wrote your first book and you um, you had a very distinct audience in mind for it, and yet the audience that came to that book changed the work in a way that made you feel uncomfortable. And, and I, that's completely what this is about, you know, who gets to decide the content of the work is not always the person that the work is about. Um, and I think that that's something that I've certainly become, because of, because of listening to perspectives like that and because of trying to put myself outside of my own viewpoint, um, it's something that I'm, I'm trying to be more conscious of as I consume stories and as I, as I look at who's making stories, like not just what the story's about, but who's making the story. Who gets to have control over that narrative? And if, if pushback is, if, if the people who are making that story do get pushback because of the political sort of, um, because of the location of their politics and their identity, how do they respond to that? And, and what story does that then tell about, you know, the, the role of narrative and, and who gets to decide what stories are even put out into the public consciousness?
1: Yeah, and I think there's a certain extent to which panels like this address that problem, you know, why women's stories matter. Um, There's probably been such a panel at every Newcastle Writers' Festival since it opened. I've probably been in the audience um, of every single Why Women's Stories Matter panel um, since it opened. But the need is recurring. It's ongoing because women's stories and certain women's stories in particular, as you were saying, Clem, do not get heard, published, promoted, and reviewed as much as men's. The new Amelia Report, some of you might have seen that uh, reported on in the Guardian. Um, Amelia Report tells us that women's literary works are not reviewed as much as men's. Vida, Women in the Literary Arts, tells us this every single year. And I wanted to just... I know in some sense it's blatantly obvious, but I wanted to ask you why it's important to get women's stories and diverse women's stories out there. What effect do they have on our lives and our society?
2: I know it's a big one. (laughs) It sure is. Um, Well, like you say, it's, you know... It's obvious. But um but you know, but but needs needs saying, needs doing. I mean I think, you know, to put it in a more um you know, to say something sort of more particular, um and to you know to go back to what you said, Alison, about about what happens to you know, I mean once you write something, once anyone writes something and it's out in the world, then you know, it's it's beyond your control, even though, you know, writers are appearing everywhere telling everyone, you know, know what they think about their own books and stuff it's um you know that's that's not really how how writing works you know it's not how transmission works but but thinking of like when i when i won the victorian Premiers, i said to um some of the literary editors who reviewed me uh, i mean sorry who who interviewed me just briefly you know at the time on the day um well it would be good if you reviewed my book and um you know, if your papers reviewed my book, and my other books were all reviewed, but this one, I feel like there's a bit of a cordon sanitaire around it, even though I've had a lot of you know you know fantastic um, you know people have reached out to me uh in terms of a kind of literary reviewing i mean of of course you know i'm not I won a big prize, and that 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 is its own thing, but in terms of sort of reviewing culture, which you know I mean anyone I think would agree that. Literary reviewing in Australia is pretty crap in, in, the, in the main. Um, you heard and, that here. And <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> and very, very thin on the ground, you know. It, it's not taken seriously and it's been cut back even much further in recent times. Um, but when... So, you know, I was kind of hoist on my own petard because a review did appear in The Australian last week and opened by taking the opportunity... Um, that apparently my book had, had, you know, provided to have a go at um, government funding of the arts in general and my mother in particular for having had government uh, grants. So, you know, of course, you know, I regretted that I had said, why don't you review my book? Um, you know, and um, the kind of... I think it's always important to remember that that, you know, public discourse is, you know, incredibly multifarious. And if, if, as does happen, sort of the literary gets, it's like casserole, literariness, you know, if it gets um, confined to um, the various sort of, you know, more popular and more uh, elite sort of modes of commentary, yeah. then, I mean, they have to be seen, you know, for what they are. And, uh, you know, we have to be interested in the ways in which, um, you know, the, the whole world of, um, uh, you know, the way in which literary texts, all texts sort of um, have effects in the world is much, much bigger than that and sometimes very hard to track. But I think certainly I've had a very fascinating, visceral experience mm. of that with this book of mine. Um I mean, partly through things like, you know, having read a poem on the project, you know, a thing I never expected to happen, um, and probably they never expected to happen. <laughs> Apparently it caused uproar. The producer of the show told me that um, she had had to fight really, really hard not to have my poem, which, you know, took maybe, I don't know, it probably took 90 seconds or something, not to have it cut. She told them it's very important not to cut it, and the editors said, why, you know, what's?" you know, it's a minute and a half, just this poem going on, you know. And and so to get over that, um they had they animated the text of the poem and there were all these letters sort of falling down oh no. the uh, um just to give people something to look at, you know.
4: Oh so, my
1: goodness, you know.
2: Who knew that would happen? But I'm glad it did.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the um, attracting audiences that you weren't necessarily um, expecting, Corey Bernardi also had oh, a go. Oh Jesus! And, um, you
2: know, um, Miranda <laughs> Devine. Um, you know, just the the whole the whole right wing. Um, you know, panoply. Yeah, I mean, it was that's it's horrifying, and I you know I couldn't even read. You know, I just. You know, just for a few weeks there it was so overwhelming and so horrifying. I was just – I could not believe it, you know, um, and that somehow and, – and they're all, you know, like sp- supposedly on my side. You know, I'm not on their fucking side, you know. <laughs> and,
0: you know. That, that's, the, that's the only time that people like that care about the story that you're telling is yeah. when they can use it against – when they can use it against the side that's trying to stop that from happening.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, certainly my whole professional life, you know, as an academic, is about trying to, um, you know, raise the level of, um, of reading and of what is, uh, you know, the kind of the, the political um, and cultural sort of salience of what it is to write and read mm. you know
1: yeah so I understand that it's not a simplistic relationship between representation and well you know like literary representation or cultural representation and political representation but Alison I I, I wanted to ask you as well what difference does it make to have stories out there, like women's stories out there that speak to different constituencies that represent a diversity of women's voices rather than the idea that there is a woman that would be as mythical as a man.
3: It's interesting that you ask that because it's a question I've been turning over in my mind for the last six months. I actually am quite worried about what it means to be kind of put in the diverse box at stuff like that I'm not saying that you did that to me or at this event or anything but there's a particular response I think that especially Indigenous women's writing gets um it's just kind of a blank slate onto which people project something that they're looking for Mm -hmm. um so I've I've kind of talked about this with review culture in the past it's like something that people kind of Almost obligingly say to Indigenous authors that their work is important, and it's, it's kind yeah. of—it's a poem about finger fucking. It's not—it's not, it's not going to change the world, and it's an incredible Could. weight of expectation that comes with that. That I find really, really hard to bear. One that um, you should have to create a poem about finger fucking that's going to kind of, you know, um, decolonize this continent. <laughs> And then, chop-chop, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. (laughs) And then, on the other hand, that you're going to, with that one voice, somehow represent the plurality of Indigenous interests in this context. And so to kind of um, be asked to bear that, in addition to people just generally not taking you seriously and regarding that your presence alone is going to be enough, and that kind of getting through the door is excellence can be really frustrating for me and we've seen the flip side of it with some i'm i'm lucky that kind of well, poetry is so poorly reviewed I think that people just kind of obliquely say oh it's, it's good but for people who are maybe have more of a profile um, like if their work's on the television or the stage they get caught co- all kinds of abuse that's more concerned with projecting this idea of like their race politics as a cipher for the quality of their work um, and ultimately that's something that I think we need to fix and it's more than just kind of getting more writers into the space
1: yeah, that is great and magnificent segue to the question you didn't know was coming, because I wanted to s- ask a question—the last question that I'll ask about form—to all of you, because they—they they are books, they're texts, they're not just receptacles of the political message. There are ways in which the form of all of these texts, not just the poetry texts, um, work with style and language and message in a way that I find really uh, terrifically exciting Um, for all of the, uh, you know, degradation, exploitation, predation, disaster that is happening in some of the, um, you know, chapters of, of these books. There is this fantastic uh, brazen sense of humour that I loved in all of them. Um, And I just want to ask a question about the role of humour or style in what you work with and also because I just wanted to quote share with you all my favourite quote from Clem (laughs) on incels, the men who are involuntarily celibate, you say, basically, we're looking at a turducken of toxic masculinity, entitlement, self-obsession and rank misogyny, and there is just something beautiful about reading a sentence like that. Um, I would suggest we need a quail in there as well because there were four categories. But could each of you just, to wind up, say something about how you use the style? Because as writers... You know, you're, it's more than just the message, it's also the medium.
0: Um, well, I find that humour has been, a, you know, a, a necessity in my work and I think I'm very funny. You've got to have faith in yourself, you've got to believe in yourself. <laughs> but, you know, it's not... I worried actually when I was writing this book in particular because it is so dark in mm. a lot of places. Like, it goes to some very dark places and dark expressions of humanity, and I really needed to work hard at bringing the levity in to be able to offset some of that, and the good thing is that men are very easy to joke about. Um, (laughs) Sitting ducks, really. Not very good at laughing at themselves, but um, yeah, I feel like, can I just, though very quickly, sorry I'm going to break the rules a bit, I just wanted to answer your last question about the why it's important to yep. tell women stories, and I only want to answer that just by using this one example that's in the book. Um, and I'm sorry, it's it's quite it's about a rape trial, so just blanket warning. There's a, a trial that I write about that happened in Belfast last mm. year, where a, a young woman was raped at a house party, and she very bravely took four men to court, two of whom she had alleged had raped her, or two of whom she said had raped her, I believe her, she was raped, Um, and two of whom were charged, one as an accessory and one as having exposed himself to her. All four men had, they they were, you know, rugby boys, so they had power and privilege behind them. They also had the weight of the nation supporting them. They all had their own lawyer each, so this woman, this incredibly brave young woman, was cross-examined for eight days straight in her own... Trial, um, but the, the the part of the story that really leapt out to me was that in the she had um the the day after it happened she was messaging her friend on WhatsApp and she was saying that she'd been raped by these Ulster rugby boys, and she was saying that you know that she'd been out and she'd met them at a pub and they'd gone back to a house party and that's where it had happened, and she just sort of said as a throwaway line almost to her friend in this WhatsApp that she had you know I, I was out I hadn't shaved my legs. Um, i hadn 't shaved my legs or faked tanned or anything i wasn 't up for fucking and I remember reading that and thinking about how the defense 's argument against her of course was that she was at this pub and she was dressed up to the nines and she was flirting and and thinking about that kind of answers a big part of that question is why do women 's stories matter because that 's an essential story that we can all relate to as this uh, this threat of sexual violence and For me, I read that and I was like, of course, in a world that has conditioned and socialised this woman to fear the way that men will react to her disgusting, unshaven, unwielding body, if she really wanted to have sex with a strange man that night, she would have made sure that her legs were shaved. And that seemed to me to be incredibly obvious, knowing what I know about being socialised as a a woman in a patriarchy. The fact that she didn't, and yet she still was dressed up according to how we frame mainstream beauty in this world and, and... to attract attention to a certain point didn't seem to me to be what was at stake. But because we, you know, the the legal system that she was working through is also not interested in the reality of women's lives, that didn't become, no one picked up on that. That didn't become a fundal, fundamental part of her case. It was still, well, she was out, she was flirting. Oh. I put it to you that she wanted to take home a famous man and have this happen. So that's, one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have our stories be told and understood, so that when you know we, the reality of our lives and how we move through it, and the understanding that we move through it so differently to men who particularly are at the top of that pile of privilege, is understood clearly, so that a woman like that doesn't have to spend eight days being cross-examined in a in a court. Um, but yeah, humour. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, we are going to uh, open I, I do are uh, we going to talk about humour just to like save our constitutions? Um, if you would like to ask a question, there is a microphone that's going to be coming to the middle of the room. so if you want to line up to ask a question, that would be good. Um, I think um, Clem, the humour in your book and you know that that the Ulster story. I mean, story, the Ulster, well, it is a story, I guess. The Australian Football Code stories, these are all incredibly hard to read. But then also reading it is like uh, the valiance of you coming through, you know, just like the, like, take no prisoners and not going to put up with this. Um, you talking, you speaking these stories, I think is um, a fantastic uh, antidote to that um so i am kind of interested in like how you use humor to like kind of drag us with you but also probably drag you know make make some of your opponents just stop
0: well i just think that firstly i think women are extremely funny and <laughs> we the the ways that we are able to use sarcasm and um to be able to joke about the, the matters of our own lives. And in fact, you know, it's again, it's humour that's not understood by the people that we're making the jokes about because mm. they don't care about our stories. Um, but I feel like laughter for me has always been the best weapon against the people who are, are extremely hostile against what I and other Women fighting in this area I have to say it 's yeah. not earnestness, earnestness is the worst thing that you can use against them. You know I see women trying to have these trying very valiantly to have these um, empathetic conversations with men who are just not interested in having that who, who want to further hurt the woman and undermine her and discredit what she's saying mm. and it's it's just going to break their heart you know because you try and try and there's only so far you can go with that earnestness before you feel like you've just become an, an object of ridicule again yeah so for me using sarcasm and mockery and and humor is a way of shifting the spotlight back on the person who's trying to keep it shining in my eyes yeah and and making other people look at them and highlighting how how ridiculous their behavior is and how harmful they're Their thinking is, and a friend of mine said to me a few years ago that it's not. Sometimes it's not about the person you're having the conversation with; it's about the people who are listening. Mm. And I feel like that's been really effective. In you know, there's lots of activists in Australia who use those methods, and and in doing so, are able to bring in, you know, dozens or hundreds of people alongside them who will learn through what they're saying, but who also will be, we'll see, that's how I can respond to it like that, mm. you know? So one yeah. of the things that I love, and I'm, I'm not saying that they're doing it because of me because I think there's so many women doing, using this tactic now, but one of mm. the things I love about the year 2019 versus the year 2012 even is seeing how many more women, instead of shutting down their social media accounts and disappearing and, and not engaging because it's too scary and hostile and frightening, mm. are actually not just pushing back against some of the, the shit that we have to deal with, but supporting each other and banding with each other and and finding solidarity and humor with their own uh w- you know with with people who they may not have spoken to before but who they can suddenly suddenly become part of a a group yeah with you know
1: absolutely um Kate and Alison the topics of um you know like there's such Uh, dark topics um, involved in each of your collections but they also both have a really sneaky, sly sense of humour that is just like such a delight to come across Um, and it kind of even more effective in the face of justifiable anger and all of that kind of thing. Are you conscious of that as a strategy or is that just coming out? I don't know, it just seems like a very effective tool to have in the feminist toolbox in this day and age.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> it's hard to be funny with poetry, I think. People, like, well, approach I it, think maybe you with do very well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, For me, um, humour is something that comes very quickly when you expose something's internal logics. Yeah. Um, so patriarchy is funny because it has kind of these internal logics that turn on themselves and that make no sense and the people who put an earnest commitment in them look ridiculous when you expose it for what it is. Mm. Um, and at the same time... <sighs> In a cruel way, there's something kind of really funny and hyperbolic about suffering for me Uh, just like kind of taking it to its furthest point it's a really dark thing but it's sometimes being frank about what's happened being deadpan um can make people laugh and then hesitate and then laugh and then feel gross and that's Hmm. like (laughs) yeah it's a a really good process for getting to people because it's um something that they digest themselves yeah not something you have to put on the page for them
1: yeah I think that way um about your um Alison has a couple of poems that are kind of data-mined law cases, so the three most recurring words in a phrase in certain um, uh, legal judgments on Indigenous deaths particularly and reading that you do go through that. It's deeply um, disturbing and then shocking hilarity and then, oh no, what am I doing? So I think in terms of you put your reader through that and I think that's a really effective strategy. Kate, you do something similar in the long poem about um, the psychiatric... Um...
2: Longitudinal study of psychoanalysis. Okay. Kate, yeah. hey, crunched case studies. Yeah, yeah.
1: and it, and and I've heard you read it Um, the audience is like, oh no, oh no, it's no good, no good, like a little bit of, oh, pop of hilarity, pop of hilarity, and then just like everybody's going, oh no, and then laughter, so I, I love this as a kind of strategy to inflict on the audience, it's like you figure out if this is funny or not. And a lot of it will depend on, you know, where you're coming from. Um, I do want to turn over to the audience because I imagine some of you are raring to go. Can you raise your hand if you have a question for any of our speakers? I am a teacher. I can wait. Yep. (laughs) Would you be able to come out and speak to the microphone or do we have a roving mic anywhere? If anybody else knows that they want to ask a question, come up and come down to the mic so that we can line you up.
0: While um, this person's making their way to the mic, just, isn't it funny, speaking about humour, it's so funny how when you, if you sort of say, oh, this year I'm only going to be reading books by women or this year I'm only going to be reading books by <coughs> women of colour or, or watching movies by made by you know, whatever. Yeah. Oh, bloody men get so cross about it. So yeah. cross. I know. Well, surely it should just be about whether the
1: work's good. Yes, yes, <laughs> merit and the level playing field. Also, um in teaching, so uh I would go, I think I'll do another course on women's writing and our executive officer will say, didn't you do one of those two years ago? <laughs> I mean, like... Does anybody say that about the men's literature courses? Uh, I think that's just called literature.
4: All right. That's that's based on, yeah.
1: So the
4: audience member. Hi, everyone. My name is Kylie. I have more of a statement than a question. Uh, I just wanted to thank you all for coming and presenting to us today, Um, but more importantly, writing down what you've written down in your books so that there's a record for future generations to be able to read things like this. Something that concerns um, myself and my friends is um, as I progress in my thinking, I therefore think that we as a society do the same thing. I'm often disappointed uh, when I realise that that's not the case. So I think that it's really important that um, these things, your stories are written down, that you've been open and honest with the world and um, that we have a record of that for future generations and that we can educate um, people as they come through so thank you thank Thank you you. you.
1: we might have the next question hi um my name's brooke um i work at the university of newcastle but i've just come across uh to newcastle from sydney's um tech scene and my question is for Clem in particular but everyone can comment on it some of the experiences that I went through actually made me not want to go. So I, I came back from Yahoo, but I worked at a tech company called Unruly and before that, Kenshu. And just women in the workplace and in tech in particular being a very male-dominated field, some of the experiences I'd seen and witnessed that does make women like literally leave the industry. And I was wondering if Clementine has come across any of those stories or would like to hear about
0: them. Uh, uh, Tech thing, like people working in tech, um, I I have here and there, you know, I've had women who write to me and, and talk about their experiences of um, just what it's like to move through that kind of field. I, I I don't have anything specific that I can really speak to, and I'm obviously not an, an expert in that, but I guess, again, that kind of universal thread that, that runs through anyone experiencing being uh, discriminated against in the workplace. Is that it's so it's like it's so often invisible, you know, that um any complaints that are made, even if it's just the people who experience that marginalization chatting about it with each other, is so often met by people saying, Oh, well, you're just imagining it or well, why didn't you why didn't you know, it's your fault, you should do something different. Um I mean, the one thing that I can kind of—the best example I can think of—is how a lot of men have responded to discussions about sexual harassment in the workplace, and how, um, as if somehow women wanting to go to work and not be touched by their boss, even if it's not, you know, Trump-style grabbing, but just Biden-style touching, you know. (laughs) That somehow it's again—you're again, you're either imagining it, or you're making a big deal out of nothing, or the worst thing that you somehow lack the toughness that is required to work in this field, as if somehow, as if somehow men would tolerate going to work and being and having someone just sort of. Oh, sorry, I don't know you well enough to stroke you, but you know, like, come up. I was saying. I was saying this to someone this morning, just that thing that sometimes women experience in the workplace from from men, where they come up behind them and they just like massage their shoulders. <laughs> like men just don't do that to each other, you know, or or like being moved out of the way by having a man touch you on the hips and physically move your body, you know. I mean, that stuff I think is is almost more difficult to fight against because. It's just sort of seen as being part of the invisible gas of the workplace that mm. we somehow if, if we're like, This gas is making me really sick, they're like, Well, why didn't you buy yourself a very expensive gas mask then?
1: <laughs> we got given it when we started working here, but that's an occupational health and safety issue. Which sexual harassment should be, I think. Yeah. Thank you for your question.
5: Um, then we have another question. Yep hi I'm Tanika I, I know Trisha very well I'm a PhD student at the University of Newcastle um, and I just had a question in regards to I guess the processes of creating these texts that you have um, we had a beautiful session before on yesterday on conversion therapy in Australia and what the authors said was the process of creating these texts um, that were inherently healing to the people reading them was actually very traumatizing for them so it was very it was a a process of re-traumatising, of experiencing that trauma again. And I wondered if you had anything to say on that topic of healing and the trauma uh, inherent in the process.
2: Um, Yeah, I'll say something about that. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's... I mean, I think all these things are very complex and, um, you know, change around all the time. And I guess what I've tried to do in, in, in my book is to formalise uh, a kind of full range of feeling and thought around these questions. So, you know, from the sarcastic and sardonic and funny to the kind of um, annihilated, mm. um, you know, confused, etc., Um, And to, you know, to have the whole sort of, uh, you know, but I think the process of writing it, I mean, I think there is sort of, you know, there is catharsis in it in writing in general in the sense that you, just that process of formalisation um, that you, you know, you you form something that has some kind of object status in the world. It's a thing and you did it. Um, and then when that object moves into the world um well then a whole other process begins and that it will never be um whatever you might fantasize about that it'll be it'll it'll be so many different kinds of things and um for me you know because it because it dovetailed with my sister's book coming out and really because of her book producing this media storm that was immensely confronting and immensely, um, you know, traumatic. I think for me, what, what that sort of risk was, I mean, not only that I, I mean, you know, in my in my life as an academic, you know, I'm used to, to having to, I'm used to talking about things in public, you know, to some extent, and in the classroom and all that. But, um, you know, the stakes of it were very high in this case but um even in the midst of the the you know the difficulty of it and I'm never you know I'll I'll never be happy with what I say about it you know I mean it's it's too hard you know it's too you know but but I'll but I'll you know I'll I'll wear that that's just part of the process you just do what I, you know I do what I can and um but because my sister and I appeared as a kind of you know sort of double act um it was really that that was an amazing sort of in the midst of this storm it was an amazing sort of intimate experience between the two of us sort of reconnecting about this traumatic material in our you know young lives that we had never really spoken about i mean we knew of it um you know what it when we witnessed what happened to each other but we didn't really talk about it it was kind of impossible at the time we talked with so this is how we talked about it sort of in the each reading each other's books and in this weird public way yeah. and again it's kind of inexpressible for us what's happened between us but we know it it's very powerful mm. and Unexpectedly, that to me is the most personally valuable thing that has come out of this whole process.
1: I think that gives you just that inner microcosm why women's stories matter to the people that go through them and write them and to the people who listen to them as well. We have one more question and then we'll wrap up.
5: Hi, my name is Hannah and um, I think my question is mostly going to be directed toward Alison. I'm proud to say that I'm part of your 5% audience and Mm -hmm. I first came across your literature in the lifted brow in 2017. Your poem, Don't At Me, spoke in lengths um, to my experiences as an Indigenous queer woman and I wanted to ask you, how have you navigated those incredibly sensitive issues around culture and our people especially in terms of any backlash and criticism you may have had about writing about deaths in custody. Did you, have you had to engage with communities at all in writing about that? I know there's always content warnings when we look at our people who have passed away on screen, but how have you looked at that in your writing? And have you had any people like reach out to you, any family members affected or communities affected within that particular nuance of your poetry?
3: Um, so there's some of this that we should probably talk about off stage for reasons I'm sure you can appreciate. Um, but I will say that the the key rule that I've had to navigate in this space is to be a good and responsible custodian of someone else's trauma and someone else's experience uh, to the extent that you have permission to do so, um, and that the focus of the work should always be on the systems and not on the person. So the poems we were talking about earlier, kind of similar to Don't At Me because Don't At Me was um, a series of curated tweets uh, and these are a series of like curated legal concepts. The reason I ended up doing that methodology um, was that I was trying to write about these legal decisions that were in a way kind of an act of violence against someone else, like claiming to represent someone who's gone and what they experienced and what should be done to address that experience. And no matter what I wrote, the more I tried to intervene, the more I was actually just participating in that gaze, contributing to that dehumanisation that happened to them. And so to become someone who was criticising the law that they were um, being subjected to, not actually what happened to them, I had to just completely pull myself back from that and that's the reason I got a computer to go in and pick out, you know, the most common three-word phrases and rank them because then it could be no more clearer that I was talking about the law and not the person. Um, But we should definitely chat. I would love that. Thank you. I would love that too okay sadly we have gone
1: over um, but i want to ask you to help me thank our three amazing speakers for a terrific time.
0: i hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 newcastle writers festival save the date for next year's festival april 3 to 5 and follow us on facebook for regular updates